Well, I want to invite you to grab a Bible with me this morning, or you can open that Bible app, grab a Bible in the pew rack in front of you, but join me in Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. Now, if you're not quite sure where Malachi is, you could find Matthew in the New Testament. And if you just go back a couple of pages, you will be in the Old Testament book of Malachi. And that's where we're going to spend a little bit of our time here this morning. You know, a few years back, our family took a vacation together where we went to San Antonio, Texas, and it was an absolutely great city to visit with this beautiful river walk, these historic Spanish missions, and just a great cultural experience of all these different things for the seven days that we were there. And so in order, though, to get to San Antonio, we decided to drive. And so we packed up everything that uh, we would need for the trip in our van, and we stopped at a number of different locations along the way just to kind of try to enjoy the journey. Well, one of the stops that we made actually was on our way back to Chicago. We had explored all of the di- these different things in San Antonio, and now we are on our way back home, uh, and we decided to stop in Dallas, Texas to spend a day there. The main reason why we stopped in Dallas was to take a tour of the John F. Kennedy Memorial and the Sixth Floor Museum that depicted the events of November 22nd, 1963, when our nation's 35th president, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated. Now, we have a picture from that day when JFK was assassinated back 59 years ago. But it was a tragic day in our nation's history. The the president had been counseled by many people not to go to Dallas. There were elements of hostility against him at the great, in the great state of Texas. But but his vice president had uh, been from the state of Texas, Mr. Lyndon B. Johnson, and Kennedy was running for re-election as the president, and so he knew that it wouldn't be possible to win the election if he didn't win Texas, so he decided to go. Well, during the visit, he was not well protected. In fact, he was riding around through the city streets, and he would typically have this protective bubble over him that had this bu- that was bulletproof, but, you know, that day it wasn't on. And which left him exposed to countless numbers of people who had lined the city streets throughout this parade route that he was going on. In fact, the parade route had been published that morning in the Dallas Morning News. And so if you wanted to know where this motorcade would be going throughout the day, all you had to do was to open up the newspaper and you could find out all of those details. Well, there were literally thousands of people. They were all hanging outside of the buildings and, and down, uh, of downtown Dallas that day. There were people on top of the roofs of those buildings. And, and at any one of those uh, times that he passed any of those things, there, there's all these threats that would be uh, posed to the president that day. It was a Secret Service nightmare. But, but this whole situation stands as a living example of the dangers of being careless with priceless things. Clint Hill was one of the Secret Service agents that day assigned to the president's body. His bodyguard has testified many times that if he had only been one step quicker, 
one step quicker and he could have positioned himself in such a way to have protected the president's life from that fatal shot. Friends, today I want to talk to you from Malachi chapter 1 about some dangers to the Christian life, particularly the dangers of being careless and cavalier with spiritual things. Because one of the messages that is consistent throughout the pages of the Bible is that there is a high price to pay when we become too casual in our worship of a holy God. And it's this subject of worship, the the worship of God, that the prophet addresses here in these verses that we're going to be looking at today. Your Bible's open to Malachi chapter 1, and this is a rather long passage, so I'm not going to read all of these verses here for the sake of time, but I want to focus in on just a portion of this as we get started beginning in chapter 1 and verse 6. And so here's what we read. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if if I am a master... Where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you, says the Lord, uh, by saying the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame and sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show favor to you, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he, be, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So, so this passage that we just read here has to do with worship, worship, worship. It is the fundamental subject that the prophet turns his attention to here. And worship is a central component in the community of the people of God. In fact, I don't know if there is anything more important when we come together as the assembled people of God than worship. Which is one of the reasons why we find the first commandment in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And it says... I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The nation of Israel pretty much had a zigzag pattern in their relationship with the Lord. Their worship of God was like riding a roller coaster up and down and all around. And, and, And here, 400 years before the birth of Jesus, the nation who had been led by the priest, the Levitical priest, had once again grown very careless in their worship of God. 
In fact, they had gotten into this pattern even after going through this time of great revival, as we discussed last week, when they came back into the promised land after a time of exile. And they rebuilt the temple and they reestablished the sacrificial system, rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. And everybody was excited about this new and invigorated time of uh, the identity of the people of God. And, And now they had once again gotten back into these bad habits that had marked their checkered past before. From our text here, we read that they had begun to offer second best, second rate, second tier, second hand offerings to the Lord. And the end result, as God himself makes very clear, he is dishonored and they are in a spiritual wasteland because of it. And the sad thing is that they're still gathering together each week thinking that everything is good but they they don't realize just how spiritually dead they have become. Last week, Malachi reminded us of the believer's greatest assurance, namely the love of God. God's love, God loves his sovereignly chosen people who he has called into an eternal relationship with himself. But today, he turns his attention to the believer's greatest responsibility. We go from the believer's greatest assurance centered on the love of God to our greatest responsibility, which is a consistent awareness of the holiness of God. And this is just as important today as the new covenant people of God, the church, as it was 2,400 years ago when Malachi first wrote these words to the people of Israel. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, the author of Hebrews says this to us, the new covenant people, He says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And so this morning, we want to talk for a few minutes about this idea of acceptable worship as a community of faith in the presence of a holy God. And we want to look at three things that I think we need to know about the believer's greatest responsibility and, by extension, our church's greatest responsibility. The first thing just has to do with the fact that God demands reverence and respect in worship. God demands reverence and respect in worship. And the fact is that he was not getting that from the people of Israel during this time. Look at what we read there in verse 6. It says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. Now, we're reminded here in this opening verse that God, back then and now, relates to his people in two fundamental ways. First, as a father, but second, as the sovereign Lord. That that God is our heavenly father, but he is also our master and king, that he is the creator and the sustainer of the entire universe. And, And you know, in respect to being a father... He wanted people to understand just how important fathers are in their community life, physically and spiritually. 
And he wanted people to understand how he wanted fathers to be treated with honor and with respect. And if that's true of an earthly father, how much more true of a heavenly father who never fails his children. But God not only is just a heavenly father, he makes it very clear here that he is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And the only right response to a sovereign Lord, to the one who oversees all things, the one who is in complete control, the one who, uh, to whom you and I give an account to, the only right response to him is absolute submission and total and complete obedience. And so when we disobey God in any way, we fail to demonstrate that he is genuinely Lord of our lives. Now, Responding to God as our sovereign Lord means that not only do we need to honor God, but we need to fear him as well. Oftentimes when we think of fearing someone, we think of being deathly afraid of him. And, and, and that's not really the idea, though, of what it means to fear God. It doesn't mean that you have to have this terror of him, that, that every time he shows up, you go diving underneath the chair. Now, there are some people who have a real a difficult time connecting with their heavenly father because they had a problem connecting with their earthly father. And, and, and I never want to make light of that. If you've had a strained relationship with your father or you've literally been afraid of your father, the tendency is to somehow think that God is that way. And so some people don't really like their father because, and because of that, they don't really connect and like God either. But that is an inappropriate response to the God of the universe. The Bible says that we are supposed to have a fear of God, but as we've heard before, there, that has more to do with a reverence. It has more to do with a deep-seated respect. I think that having a fear of God always begins with having a proper understanding of the holiness of God. Because if you don't have a proper understanding of the holiness of God, you'll never have an appropriate biblical fear of God. It just won't happen. But if you understand the holiness of God, the power of God, the judgment of God, the discipline of God, as it relates to sin, you will fear God in a proper way. Think of those Hebrew midwives as it relates to the fear of God. You remember the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1? Pharaoh had ordered that all of the Hebrew boys, all of the newborn baby boys be killed. He had all of these midwives come together and he said to them, listen, if you are helping to deliver one of these baby boys or these babies and you find out that it is a boy, you, you notice that it's a boy, you need to kill it right away. And it's one of the earliest recordings of partial birth abortion. This was a direct order from the king, from the Pharaoh himself. But, but these midwives, they wouldn't do it. They risked their very lives. They decided that they would disobey the commandments of Pharaoh because they knew that it wasn't right. They knew that in order to honor the law of God, they had to violate the law of Pharaoh, which is always an appropriate thing to do. But what, what, that, what did that lead them to do, or, or, or what, what led them to do that? The Bible says that those women feared the Lord. That's why they did it. 
And, and I'm just saying that that kind of fear of God that you and I uh, need to walk with in order to live a life of obedience. It's a fear of God that impacts our response to God. It constrains our behavior and compels us to live in a way that brings honor and glory to him. If you lose the fear of God, you become like a ship that is at sea that has lost its navigation systems. I mean, just think about it once. Maybe you're, if you were a captain of a large boat and you were out on the ocean and all of a sudden your electronic systems just shut down and the panels in front of you go blank. You look into the sky because you think, well, maybe I could try to use the stars to navigate my my way around. But the clouds are out and, and it's just pitch black and you can't see anything out there. You're just at the mercy of the wind and the waves. Well, when you and I lose a healthy fear of a holy God, we are left to be blown around by the wind and the waves of the culture around us. And that's why God ask the question here in verse 6, where is my honor and where is my fear, O priests? Now, those verses here, uh, all the way through to chapter 2 and verse 9, are particularly addressing the priests. But, but, but don't ignore this too quickly because in the New Testament, it talks about every single one of us being a priest before God. That there is a priesthood of believers. And so I think that this applies to the priest as a group of leaders, but I think that this also applies to the people as well. After all, the, the people in Malachi's day, <clears throat> they're bringing these sacrifices and they knew what God had expected. They knew what, what God wanted and yet they had lost their fear of God. They had lost their honor of God. And so God, through the prophet Malachi, calls them out for despising his name. Now, I doubt that there is anyone here this morning who would say, you know what, I despise the name of God. But, but did you know that your actions can actually indicate that that's exactly what you do? If you come offering God second rate, second best, second hand, you are actually despising the name of God. Uh, now, uh, again, we often misunderstand this word despise. We, we think that if we despise someone, it means that we just want to come up to them and just grab them by the throat and strangle them. We, we, we see it in this extreme kind of way, but, but this word despise here, it means to consider something to be worthless, to treat it as if it doesn't really have any value. Like maybe someone uh, giving you something like a fake, um, uh, fake jewelry or fake costume jewelry, you know, and, and you think, you know what, I wish that they would have given me the real thing. I wanted the real thing. I don't want this fake stuff. And so you just kind of throw it away or you take it and you throw it in a drawer somewhere. It's worthless to you. It's not worth wearing. It's not worth showing off. And that's what Malachi says to the people of his day. He says, you're treating God as if he's worthless. It's a strong statement, so strong that the people initially deny it. You see this cynicism here and they say, like, what are you talking about? I mean, verse 6, again, it says, how? I mean, how have we despised your name? How have we 
we treated you as worthless. I, I mean, we're gathering together. We're going to the temple. We're praying. We're sacrificing. What are you talking about? Well, in verses 7 and 8, God helps us to identify the problem when he says, you know what? Here's how. You want to know how you've despised my name? I'll show you. He says, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame and sick, is that not evil? God says, here's the issue. It is inferior worship that is marked by inferior sacrifice. These people had been walking with God for centuries. And he had been very clear in the law that they were to offer the first in the flock, the best in the flock, the unblemished in the flock as a sacrifice to him. Not the least and the worst and the lame and the sick and the blind and the diseased. Listen, these people were cutting corners in their worship and they were doing it for their own profit. Why would we give God our best? I mean, he just wants some blood to be shed. So we can shed some blood and we can give him the three-legged goat, right? Because we can't sell that one. That one can't make us any money. Why don't we just give that one to God? I mean, he gets his blood we get to make this sacrifice, and we, we can sacrifice with something that we weren't going to make any money off anyway. And so they offer to God what they can't use, what they, what they couldn't sell, what, what they couldn't make any money from. They offered the blind, the lame, the diseased, and God was not happy about it. God never is happy being treated like a second-hand thrift store God. Now, in our culture today, we sometimes glorify thrift stores because, I mean, you can really get a good deal at a thrift store sometimes, but that's not the way that God ought to be treated. In fact, there in the second half of verse 8, God says, why don't you try to present that to your governor? Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? God says, listen. If you get invited down to the governor's mansion, why don't you go and take the three-legged goat with you and give that to him as a, as a gift? I mean, how do you think he'd like that? How do you think he'd respond? And you wouldn't do that, right? I mean... You'd get dressed up, you'd bring the best gift that you had to offer. You, 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 you know the quality of the gift says something about the quality and the position and the authority of the person. I mean, we often say, well, it's the thought that counts. But with God, it's the gift that counts as well. Sure, the thought counts. I mean, listen, if the three-legged goat is the only goat that you have, it's the best that you've got to offer, then God is perfectly fine with that if it's your best. So, so yes, the thought is something that matters, but the gift matters to God very much as well. Think about the guy that I was talking to the other day. He, was just, he had just celebrated his 50th birthday, had gotten a bunch of generous gifts from his friends and his family. But he told me that one of the gifts he had really caught his attention because when he opened up the box, it said Rolex on it. Now, I don't have a Rolex to bring with me this morning, but I brought a picture of a Rolex this morning. This, this thing is $8,000. 
Well, this guy loves watches, and one of his good friends had just bought him this Rolex. I mean, he's so excited. He's jumping up and down. He gives his friend the biggest hug ever. Well, two weeks later, this watch stops working. And he said, you know, I never heard of a Rolex that didn't run. And so he decides that he's going to take this thing to the jeweler and see if they can look at it. Well, the day comes when he's going to go to the jeweler. And so he picks up this watch, but he, he accidentally bumps his arm or something. And, and he drops it on the floor. And all of these little plastic parts and red wires start falling out. And he says, you know, I don't have a problem receiving a fake Rolex. But my friend didn't tell me that it was a fake Rolex. He knew that I thought it was the real thing, and yet he was fine with me thinking that. Friends, listen, sometimes we, we can do the same thing with God. I mean, come on, let, let's be honest. Sunday morning, you're running around, you're trying to get ready, you, you're at each other's throats, you're screaming at the kids, the kids are screaming at you, but, but you walk up to the church, you, you open up the door, you see the greeter, you say, wow, I mean, you're having a great day today, amen, praise the Lord, hallelujah. And you act as if everything is just great in your life. You come in, you start singing all of these praise songs to God, but you're despising the people who are closest to you. Listen, I think that we can learn some great lessons from this incredibly important passage of Scripture that was given almost 2,500 years ago. And that's to remember who God is. We've never, we're never really going to worship the Lord if we forget who he is. He is our heavenly father who loves us with an everlasting love. And he is the sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, who is a God not only of love, but of discipline and judgment. And, uh, and he judges sin. And because of that, we should never approach God with inferior, second-rate worship. But then there's a second thing that we learn here, and that just has to do with corrupt worship is worthless and demands repentance. Corrupt worship is worthless, and it demands repentance. Acceptable worship isn't just about doing the right things. It's about doing the right things in, with the right heart. And again, we might be able to hide our, motion, our, our, our motives from other people, but let me just say this morning that you cannot hide your heart from God. Acts chapter 5, we read about the story of Ananias and Sapphira who bring this offering to the Lord, make this contribution to the community of faith. They tried to do the right thing, but they did the right thing in the wrong way. And how did God respond? Well, he responded by taking their very lives so that the people in this new community of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ would never forget that you can't play around with God when it comes to matters of sin and obedience, that God takes this very, very seriously. And so, again, acceptable worship always begins with an awareness of the holiness of God. Holiness, as it relates to God, refers to God's extreme otherness. It's how God is most unlike us, his creation. He is perfect, pure, 
unblemished in every respect, which is nothing like us. And when we miss that, when we fail to focus and to gaze on the wonder of God, our worship becomes more about us than it is about God. And so then we we come to worship services and we start to evaluate it and we say things like, you know what, the songs were pretty good. And the, the, the sermon, well, it kind of put me to sleep. And the people, I mean, they weren't very friendly it was a little cool in the sanctuary, and you know what? They didn't have my favorite snacks today. But, but listen, that is consumer worship. Nowhere in, is that, in that is any thought of relating to God. That's not gazing on his holiness. That's not focusing on his glory. What that is is corporate motion and not religious devotion. If all we do is go through corporate religious motion, God says, well, you know what? You're better off just not doing anything. You're better not off not even meeting. You're better not off even trying. In fact, in verse 10, here's what he says. But, or, or oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. 300 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah, right out of the gate, Isaiah chapter 1, he focuses on exactly the same thing, only their fundamental issue had become idolatry. Isaiah, he preaches the same message in, uh, to Israel by, by telling them that God hates their religious feasts, that God has despised their religious assemblies, their worthless uh, offerings, that, that he wanted nothing to do with the raising of their hands and their empty prayers. God told them that he would hide his eyes from them, that, that he would uh, cover his ears. Here in Malachi, he basically says the same thing, just with different language. That God says here, you know what? You might as well shut the doors because the sacrifices that you're making are just a waste of time and he says that because he knows their hearts yeah they were gathering and they were praying and they were offering sacrifices they were doing all of these things that God had asked them to do but their hearts were far from him these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me their religious expressions had become nothing more than empty traditions verse 13 But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Now, I mean, this is quite an indictment here. Because they were seeing worship as a burden. Their their worship of God was this heavy burden, this heavy load that they didn't want anything to do with. I mean, it would be kind of like going to a job where you just didn't want to get up in the morning and really go to it. In our day, it might be something like uh, the rolled eye emoji. You know what I'm talking about, but if you don't, we'll put it up on the screen. It's almost like, come on, are you serious? We got to go to church today? Or maybe you send a text to a friend and you say, hey, you know, I'd really love for you to come with me to church today. And they respond back with the rolled eye emoji. You know, 
That is what the people of Malachi's day were doing. They, they were rolling their eyes in disgust when it came to the worship of God. And it's interesting because I'll talk to people, not from St. Paul's, of course, but they'll say to me things like, man, you know what? Our church, all we do is sing and pray and have a sermon and, and have an offering. And they sound so disappointed. They sound so frustrated, so discouraged. And my thought is, well, what do you really want? Dancing bears or something? I mean, this is what the church is. This is the worship of God. This is what it's all about. This is what we do. This is what we have done for 2,000 years. We gather, we pray, we preach the gospel, we sing songs of praise to the Lord, we break bread together, we fellowship, we take uh, the, the Lord's Supper together, we baptize as an expression of our faith. This is what the church has always done. It's what we do today. It's what we will do a year from now. It's what we do five years from now. It's what we're going to be doing 20 years from now if the Lord doesn't come back first. That's just what we do. And friends, it's not just what we do, but it is our attitude towards what we do that makes all the difference. Which is why it is so important that we need to understand why we sing and why we preach and why we give an offering. And then to not just take to not just to, to take advantage of those opportunities to to participate in those things and to do it with a pure heart. Otherwise, you might as well just shut the doors. You know, the theme of the book of Malachi is confession and repentance. In fact, in chapter three and verse seven, he writes, "Return to me, and I will return to you," says the Lord of hosts. God told King Solomon in a dream, he said, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Malachi says here in verse 9, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. It's a call to humble ourselves, to cry out to the Lord, to experience the healing, the cleansing, and the freedom that he provides. Because if we don't do that, then there is a third reality that we will experience, which is this. God's blessing will be removed from the hypocritical and given to others who will faithfully, uh, who will worship faithfully. God's blessing will be removed from the hypocritical and given to others who will worship faithfully. What, what would happen if the doors of the house of God had been shut? What, what would have happened to Israel if they would have been absorbed into the nations around them? Well, God makes it very clear that if that had happened, he would just turn his attention to other people who would be faithful to give him the honor and the glory that he so richly deserved. In fact, there's a passage in the Bible that says that if we don't cry out in worship and praise to our great God and King, the rocks will cry out to him, but he'll just take his glory somewhere else. Verse 11, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 14. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. 
It happened to Jesus, John chapter 1 says. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In fact, some of the last words of Jesus are found in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. There in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus has some words for seven named churches. Churches throughout the Roman uh, province of Asia that at one time had been preaching the gospel, were seeing people saved, were fulfilling the Great Commission, making disciples and baptizing people. But for the most part, all of them had stopped and they had begun to just kind of drift. Uh, for most, uh, most all of them, this drift led to uh, complacency and complacency led to indifference and indifference eventually led to loss. For example, Christ told the church in Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4, he said, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. But then in verse 5, he tells them how to fix it. He says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you had at first. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He says, you know what? You've lost the love of the genuine worship of me that you first had. And because of that, I will remove your witness. I will remove your influence in a community that desperately is in need to know about Jesus. I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Listen. Churches focus on a lot of really good things. Missions, evangelism, fellowship, community service. We do all of these things and they're all very important. But let me just say that none of these things are more important than the assembled worship of the people of God before a holy and righteous God. Nothing is more important than worship. All of those other things and even our effectiveness in them flow from being a people of God who are desperately and deeply connected to God through the worship of God, a people who love God and honor God and fear God with every part of their lives. The end result of that is that the world learns of the greatness of God because we stand and we live and we walk in the very presence of, of God who we know to be holy, a God who is worthy of our very best. Friends, this is the believer's greatest responsibility and when we live this out, we fulfill our greatest purpose in life. Let's pray.